We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call them now and leave a message. They will return your call at 905-529-7165. That's 905-529-7165. And check out the website at andyanddon.com. There you can listen to old archive shows as well ask a question via the listener inquiry button. Good morning, gentlemen. Good, Good morning, to see you Scott. all. Good morning, Scott. Talking about divorce-proofing your kid's inheritance. Yes. Oh, this can get complicated. It's a very complicated. It's actually interesting. We're getting more and more questions about that because as people age, um, we've talked about estate planning a lot, but their biggest concern, okay, we've figured a way to pass on to the next generation, try to do it with the least amount of tax, but then tax is only one part of it because you know nobody wants the tax man to grab mm-hmm. all this hard-earned money, but then you think, well, do we really want the your kids' spouses to potentially yeah. grab your inheritance too. Mm. I know it seems might you might be meddling. It's kind of like a little bit of a reaching from the grave, so to speak. Um, but, you know, people are really worried about how to do this. And it's kind of interesting. They took a poll with 400 affluent Canadians and 30% of those people, so that would be 120 of the 400, didn't trust the daughter or son-in-law, mm. okay, mm. to manage the inheritance. And they're thinking, well, it's, it's, it's actually a fairly, you know, I think it's a good idea in order to really talk about this. And transparency is really the key. You talk with your son and daughter mm-hmm. or daughter and you discuss, you know, here's the amount of money that may be passing down. Mm-hmm. And it's not that I'm worried about, you know, you doing the wrong things with the money. It's what happens if there is a divorce. Yeah. And also, you know, there might have been some of those people that may have said, you know, I'm only going to hang in there until we get the money. Right, until the inheritance <laughs> comes through. And then uh, we can start doing stuff and pay off the mortgage and do all these things with mm-hmm. that money. Well, it's interesting when you do that, you're intermingling the money. And, what, and I'll get to that in a second. But basically what happens right now, there's no inheritance tax. Mm-hmm. So if your children, when, when they do inherit money, there's no tax on that per se. There's already this probate tax. Right which is one and a half percent for anything over 50,000. But, and so when you have this money, it goes to, and let's say it goes to your son and daughter, 50, 50, you have two kids. Mm -hmm. Well, if there was a divorce shortly after, your son and daughter would not lose any of that money. Right. It doesn't form part of the marriage. Right. Okay. And unless- Don't you have to consciously keep it separate though? That's the key. You Mm -hmm. have to keep it, in, in order to be excluded from the net family property, which is the money that you would split in, in, in the case of a divorce, as long as you don't blend it into a joint ownership account. So you would not want to put in a joint savings account. What's that tap dance like? <laughs> hey, honey, uh, you got the inheritance. Why aren't you putting it over here? Uh, exactly. Hmm. Yeah. Future problems, perhaps? <laughs> and this is the key. This is why transparency is key before all yeah. this happens. Yeah. Yeah. Have that conversation years in advance. Mm-hmm. You know, right. you might receive an inheritance. I might receive an inheritance. How are we going to treat this? Yeah. You know what the law says, Don says, Andy yeah. says, you should yeah. do this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and funny enough, the worst thing, is probably just throwing in the matrimonial home because that's the easy one. Everybody, oh, let's pay down that mortgage. Sure. And that's eh, probably not the best thing because right away that's 50-50, mm-hmm. no matter what. Even it's very difficult. To, you can't fight that one. Okay. So, so what if you have a happy marriage though? Wouldn't that be where you would think it would go? Or even if you think you're in a happy marriage, you should still take precautions. You should st- still take precautions because what you could do is say, oh, we'll take the income from the money mm-hmm. and we'll use the income from that inheritance to pay down the mortgage. Mm-hmm. So what happens is the income 
is part of the net family property anyway, mm -hmm. unless you've done something to make sure it isn't. Right. But let's say you inherited a million dollars and at 5%, that's 50,000 a year. Mm -hmm. Well, 50,000 a year could really go a long ways to pay down that mortgage. Sure. And you still have the million dollars in your name. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you're protecting the million dollars that you inherited and you're doing something with the growth, mm -hmm. which was gonna be 50-50 anyway. Right. Okay, so that's one thing you can do. I know, I was thinking about this and, and, and I don't know if this could work, but you could have sort of like goal posts or a goal line where you say, you know what, if, if we're together <laughs> five years from now, I'm going to put a hundred grand. If we make it to our 10th anniversary, I'm going to put 250 grand. Oh man. Yeah, I'm sure uh, that Maybe really that's well. not a great idea. <laughs> this could be very dicey. It's, mm. it's kind of interesting we're discussing this right around <laughs> Valentine's Day. Yeah, good call. There you go. Yeah. Uh, one way that... You know, the, the person who, who the estate could do, it has to be in the will, is to put it into a trust. Okay. And the mm -hmm. trust would go and then the, and basically money would make sure that it is divorce proof. Mm -hmm. And that, that kind of keeps the marriage intact because, hey, it wasn't my fault. My parents put it in the trust, not yeah, me. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. How much, I'm always, you know, how much money in general do we need, to, does an estate need to have to think about putting it in trust? That's a good point. Yeah. That's a good point. Right off the top, I look at, you know, because you know, you know, money's growing. Like you look at a value of a house now and to have a million dollar home isn't what it used to be. Mm -hmm. So a million dollar estate, yeah. mm -hmm. um, kind of like a million dollars seems to be worth it for sure. Yeah. Okay. It could be less, but mm -hmm. uh, yeah. you know, a million dollars, if you're making 5% is 50,000 a year, mm -hmm. that's a decent amount to do something with. Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. so just off the top, that's kind of. Yeah. This, if you're, if you're giving 150 grand at death, you know, maybe that's not, yeah. that's not going to be worth the, right. the cost and the trouble of a trust. Right. Yeah, and right. that's a good point. We, we start to lose track because oft, often we live in the past of what 150 grand used to be. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. And particularly as you get older, it's when you're just like getting that, that toonie for your birthday from your great grandmother, yeah. right? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. 20 years later. Yeah, so I still yeah. got that toonie. Well, it's not really worth as much yeah. anymore. It's a 50 now, Grandma. That's right. <laughs> um, a properly draft will, though, which is interesting, and I did not know this until I researched a little bit today, was, or, or last yesterday, rather, was uh, the language in your will can also include the income is not part of, of the, uh, the net family property for, for a divorce. Mm-hmm. So you actually have to put that language right in the will. Mm -hmm. So it is a way, as long as the money is kept in the, let's say your son's name, mm -hmm. and you've actually, and the income would also not be part of the net family property. Mm -hmm. So that's that's a, a, a way instead of having a trust. Yeah, it's just a, you just have the right language. So the the lawyer drafting the will has to use the proper language to make sure that it does not form the net family property. The other way, and this probably is less likely is a prenuptial agreement that can also have any future gifts, inheritances, businesses, and future income from those businesses can be in a prenup. <laughs> the problem is- Good luck. <laughs> is your, is your, the person's parents are usually younger at the time. Yeah. It would generally be a second marriage because usually if you're getting married, say at 30, that means your parents are normally about 60 and you're not ta thinking about their estate at that time. Mm -hmm. But if there's a big, if there's a business and, and, and let's say it's a well-run business worth millions of dollars, well, you may want to put that in now because eventually there will be uh, passing down of that business wow. or the assets from that business. So a prenup, a trust, or a properly drafted will are three ways to kind of make sure <clears throat> that uh, that the money is 
is divorce proof. Mm-hmm. And the trust to me seems to be, a, that's why, you know, thinking about the dollar amounts, but you, it, it really is a way to lock it down yeah. and really help avoid those marital conflict or, or tough conversations about, well, you've got, you know, a half a million dollars sitting over there in a separate bank account. Why don't we use some of that? to do X, to do Y. And that's, that constantly grinds away at a relationship until eventually (laughs) it breaks down. And so, but in trust, you can just sort of wash your hands and say, I have no control. It's not up to me. It's set in the courts. And this, these are the rules that we have to play by. Yeah. Yeah, It's funny how money kind of burns a hole in your pocket. It definitely can burn a hole in a marriage. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Now that said, you know, in in some cases, uh, both uh, partners have, uh, parents, perhaps of equal estate value. Right. So that if is, one's yeah. going to inherit and the other one's going to inherit, then there's probably a lot less tension yeah. over that because at the end of the day, it'll even out somehow. Sure. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> so yeah, it's a, it's one of those tricky conversations, but again, I can't say it enough is discussing it like anything with, with wills. It doesn't matter what it is, but this is just and one And like you said, thing. better for the parents to keep it out of the hands of the kids and let them have to make that decision with their spouse. Yes, yes. Yeah. So putting it into trust, particularly if it's a large estate, mm-hmm. million dollar plus estate, that's when you're saying, okay, you've got it. And then who's a trustee? Mm-hmm. You can use a bank you, or a trust company rather. You can use, we, we offer trust services now. Investors Group, we have our own separate, not attached to us, but mm-hmm. a separate entity that does that. Um, or you can use... You know, the kids could be the benefit, the trustees of, mm-hmm. of it too. Yeah. And if you've got more than one, it's easy because you've got two overseers of yeah. it um, or another relative, mm-hmm. and then they get paid a trustee fee. Right. And, th- and the most frustrating of all this is that so many people here in Canada still don't have a will. Yeah, yeah. yeah. good point. And, uh, and so this, this type of planning, which is excellent planning, mm-hmm. and it will help probably save a lot of marriages in some ways <laughs> yes. too, yeah. Yeah. Uh, isn't getting done. Yeah. Because people aren't taking the time, they're not getting professional advice, and a wheel kit won't cut it. it yeah. you, I mean, you have to be pretty well knowledgeable to be able to create your own trust within a wheel kit. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, it's not, I wouldn't recommend it. Yeah. We have tax lawyers on staff at head office, and they will review our clients' wills. And, you know, particularly the more complicated wills, when there's businesses, on um, what to do, kids, uh, disabled kids, mm-hmm. you know, what happens there, maybe Henson Trust. Mm-hmm. Um, there's lots of different ways to formulate that. And it isn't just a rubber stamp will that change change the name, change the date, and right. there's your will kind of thing. And that's how most wills are. They're, they're what they call mirror wills, where the husband's will and the wife's will are, are identical. And, uh, it, you know, if it, if it doesn't go to them, it then goes to the kids. Pretty straightforward. That's what I would say for a lot of people, that that's fine. Mm-hmm. But then if you want to get into the grandkids and then future-proofing that will, yeah. you definitely need to see a, a lawyer that's, you know, certainly able to do that. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, we, you know, there's no problem having a second opinion. Mm-hmm. And taking that second opinion, we send that to our head office or we'll, we've seen enough wills ourselves that we can offer some advice on that. Mm-hmm. But again, it's not legal advice. That's where you get a lawyer to look at that. And say, okay, poke holes in it. Mm-hmm. And what if there's a mass event? If if there was a mass, you know, a car accident, mm-hmm. and a whole bunch of, you know, your whole family got wiped out. That's the other one that seems to be missing in a lot of wills. Mm. Who then gets it? Yeah. Does it stay in the bloodlines? Yeah. Um, and it may, would it end up going to that in-laws? Mm-hmm. Okay, it might, um, mm. depending on how it happens. So again, there's a mass event that should also be in the will too. So 
pretty complicated um, with the wills. It only is complicated when, because you have more money. Yeah. Good problem to have because mm -hmm. you have no money. You don't really, the will doesn't have to no. be that complicated. Yep. But if you've got, you know, in, in well into the seven figures, then you start looking and say, okay, how do we manage this estate properly to not only look after our kids, but also our grandkids mm -hmm. and do it the most tax effective way. And generally speaking, they try to keep it in the bloodlines. And that's, uh, again, I know Andy's mentioned this, per stirpes is the technical term. And they use that in the will. And that just means basically that upon, say, my son's death, it wouldn't go to him. It would go to. It wouldn't go to the spouse. It would go through to the kids. Right. And if there yeah. is no kids in that relationship, it goes back into the pot, right. and then it would go to my daughter or my other kids. Right. Right. And that's per <clears throat> stirpes, and that's a great way to protect, protect and make sure it keeps where it's supposed to be kept. And usually that means not in the spouses of your kids. Hmm. Yeah. Future proofing and making sure you're protecting against divorce. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call now and leave a message at 905-529-7165. We're coming right back. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from an, from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call now and leave a message, 905-529-7165, and take a peek at the website, andyanddon.com. There you can listen to old archive shows and ask a question via the listener inquiry button. All right, it's that time of year. We're starting to talk about taxes. Taxes, taxes, mm. taxes. Oh, I'm very excited because hot off the presses, I have the latest Ontario federal, Ontario combined federal and provincial personal tax rates for mm. 2019. There you go. Wow. So I know this is such an important, this is an exciting week. <laughs> I'll tell it's, you. <laughs> it's burning up in your hands. <laughs> I just got this off and, and literally, and it's, it's fascinating to me because, you know, in general, there are kind of, we talk about three tax brackets mm -hmm. and that's true at the federal level. But once you drill down to provincial levels, mm -hmm. there are all little bits of surtaxes and rebates, et cetera, that all come together to actually create about 11 different tax brackets. So mm -hmm. there's little subtleties in each of these brackets, depending on your income, the type of income, and um, you know, are you married, single? And, and so if in general, in Ontario right now, you can earn $12,070 without paying any income tax at all. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, and that's federally and then provincially, you can go up to about 15,000 and, uh, and still pay very little tax. Like mm -hmm. it, it would be, you know, in the two to 3% range. Right. So then once you get past 15,000 up to 20 grand, they charge 25%, which is fascinating because that's actually a higher bracket than the next two brackets. So there's a sort of, we've given you all this tax-free income up to about 15. Right. Uh, and now for the next five, we're going to hit you with yeah. a higher bracket of 25%. Mm. Yeah, that one is odd because it you're is. thinking you want to help the lower income people by having a low bracket and it, and it stays that 25 and then it goes right back down after that. It, it goes, goes back very, down very to 20. Odd. So it's 25, 25.1% up to $20,245. And then now we get into a big bracket where a lot of people end up um, for certainly whether it's retirement or as you know, lower income in between 20,243,900, you are in 
the 20%, 20.05% tax bracket. So if you actually total, if you went, if you could manage to earn right up to that highest amount of income, you had taxable income this year of $43,900, you would pay $6,458 of federal and provincial taxes, which works out to an average tax rate of 14.7%. So just under 15% overall. And then we get one of these little kind of anomalies where we have a small bracket from 43.9 to 47, and then 47 to 77 is the next big one. That's a $30,000 bracket, 30,000 mm-hmm. range. So at 77, 47 to 77,000, you're in 29.65. It just kept just under that 30% range. And then there's another little anomaly of 10,000 from 77 to 87. And that starts to factor in old age security clawbacks, et cetera. And uh, that rates 31.48. And then another small anomaly, uh, 87,000 to 91,000, about four grand in there that gets taxed at 33, almost 34%. And then it jumps to 38%. uh, from 91 to 95, another four grand. So mm. you can just see these tiny yeah. little brackets. And so, um, and then once you hit 95, over $95,260, all the way up to 147000 So almost 50 grand there, uh, more than 50 grand. And that is a big wide bracket. Yeah. And that's 43.41%. Mm. So if you, if your income, if you were, um, a self-employed or a business owner and you perhaps paid yourself a salary and maybe you took a dividend and your accountant this year or your financial planner is going to say, well, if you can bring yourself right up to $147,667 of taxable income for 2019, you'll pay a total of $44,900 of tax, which works out to almost exactly 30% mm-hmm. as an average tax rate. Right. So that's, that's kind of a... Um, what ends up happening then for Don and I is it becomes these little sweet spots along the way that help us tweak with t- in terms of your RRSP contributions sure. and your tax planning and coming back to business owners, how much income should you take salary, how much income should you take in dividends so that you stay below the next threshold. Yeah. Or if it's an RSP contribution, can we reduce your income down to the bottom of your threshold, mm-hmm. of your bracket? Yeah. And that will maximize your tax savings year in and year out. And, you know, that's so key because, uh, you know, if you can save tax at 40, you know, 43%, but versus 37%, that's a 4% savings, Mm -hmm. uh, for every thousand dollars that you can manage and, and working those brackets becomes part of our strategy on an annual basis. So tax planning, we talk about it a lot and you need to be vigilant. There's no doubt about it. And it's something that just, it's an ongoing process. Mm -hmm. It's something that needs to be reviewed every single year, understanding, just handing in the documents and having your return done. That's, that's for most of us, that's like a huge milestone. Yeah. <laughs> Let's get that done, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but the, the reality is, is that you now want to be able to take it apart and not only look at what happened previously, but also what's happening next year as well. Mm-hmm. And because our lives change, you might be thinking about a career change. Maybe your income is going to go up. Maybe you're going to become self-employed and your income is actually going to go down for a couple of years as you venture out and try something different. So talking about not only what's happened in the past, but also thinking about where, what's going to be happening next year or the next couple of years, right. because that'll dictate some of the planning strategies you want to think about. But income splitting tends to be one of the key key topics and a key strategy that people need to take advantage of. And there's particularly um, some income splitting strategies I want to talk about with respect to your kids. And 
in most cases, when you try and get income into the hands of your, your children, you get slapped with what we call attribution rules, mm-hmm. which means even though they earned the income, it actually gets taxed back to you as right. a parent, as an, as an aunt, as an uncle, as a grandparent. Um, because anybody under the age of 18, if you have given them money or gifted them money, their earnings generally on that, in, on that money are going to be taxed back to you. Mm-hmm. So you can't hide it. You might, tr- you might get away with it for a while, but if you're ever audited, they're going to come and, and slap your hands right. and there are going to be penalties involved. The one type of income that doesn't get attributed back to you is capital gains. Mm-hmm. So if you can invest in an, <coughs> pardon me, in an investment that grows in value, it doesn't earn any interest, it doesn't earn any dividends that are taxed annually, it just simply increases in value. Similar to what a house does over time, if you think about that. Or if you buy uh, shares of something, mutual fund, a stock, uh, the growth on that stock or mutual fund and when you sell it is a capital gain. And sometimes a capital gain dividend is paid and those income sources are going to be taxed in the hands of your child. Okay. So generating capital gains in the hands of your kids um, or grandchildren is a great way to income split for sure. So simply buy them a house. You could. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if they can sign a contract under the age of 18. (laughs) Um, Another way to do that is to, uh, now we move into your adult children. So any child over the age of 18, you can transfer uh, investment income to an adult child. So for example, um, you know, you've been accumulating towards retirement. You have $100,000 of non-registered investments that are in um, stocks and mutual funds generating dividends. If you, uh, understanding what the triggering the gains to move that money, because it will trigger a gain, you can put that money into your child's name, and now all the interest, your adult child's name, all the interest and dividends and capital gains would be taxed in their hands as opposed to your hands. And that might make sense if you're in a high tax bracket and you know you can pay less tax by having that income taxed in your child's hand, your adult child's hand. You do uh, risk losing control in theory, right? Because um, that money is now in their hands. And uh, so you do have to be careful, particularly on creditor uh, situations, Mm -hmm. if you feel that there's a risk involved of your child in terms of bankruptcy, that money could be at risk. So you Mm -hmm. need to be confident about their capacity to manage their own finances and hopefully bankruptcy isn't on the horizon. Mm. Um, Another way is to... um, is to give funds to your adult child and then charge them room and board. So how many of us have kids that have come back, Mm -hmm. you know, are spending a year or two at home while they work and they're saving money towards uh, their own purchase of a home or just getting them paying off student debts, et cetera. And so they're living at home. But again, taking that hundred grand, putting it in their name, and now if it's generating a 5% dividend, you know, 5,000 a year, that can come back. They could just give that back to you in the form of rent. Uh, room and board. Mm-hmm. So you're, it's not like you're going to lose that cash flow. You're just simply having it taxed in their hands. Um, another one is paying an allowance to a working child. And this one I don't really like, but in general, the concept would be that if your children earn money, then they can save that money and allow it to build under their name 
uh, for either retirement, for a home purchase. And the way they can do that is if you were giving them an allowance to pay for some of their ongoing expenses, then that would free them up to save that capital going forward. Mm. And that's a future way of income splitting as well. Um, have our higher income spouse pay the bills. So if you earn uh, that $144,000 bracket and your spouse earns under the 43000 bracket, the highest income spouse should be um, spending all the money, paying all the bills, and the lowest income spouse should be putting all their money away mm -hmm. into an investment. And that way you can prove that the person with the lower income accumulated the assets over time, and obviously the investment income on that would be taxed at a lower rate as well. And that way it can't be attributed <coughs> back to and exactly. the higher income spouse. That's right. Uh, you can pay an adult child to babysit your younger kids. And so to the extent that uh, your adult child's income is under that $12,069, they pay no tax. And uh, you get to write it off as a child care expense if you qualify. Mm. And um, hire your adult child to help you move. I like this one. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, now trying to get them to do that. Yeah, that's, that's right, actually. Uh -huh. Is there a case of beer involved? <laughs> Plus, yeah, so if, you were in a, if you're moving to, uh, for employment purposes or for, uh, and it's 40 kilometers, you're moving 40 kilometers closer to your place of employment, then you're allowed to deduct moving expenses. Mm -hmm. So you could pay, uh, pay your adult child to do the expense, help you with the move, et cetera, and, uh, and that would be a tax deduction for you and, uh, and income for them. Mm -hmm. So just some different ways to think about income splitting. And again, um, you know, every, everything by itself, these aren't, you know, tens of thousands of dollars of savings, but they're yeah. incremental savings. Mm -hmm. And to the extent that you are vigilant and you can execute on getting some of these things done, it just means you're paying less tax overall, yeah. which means more money available for you for the things that are important, whether it's going to be travel, whether it's going to be paying down debt, whether it's going to be saving for retirement. Mm -hmm. So be vigilant execute the best you can and get some great advice on some other tax splitting ideas. Yeah, it's, it's, and, and being tax savings on mind right now, as we were just talking about, it's also RSP season right now. Yeah. And it's kind of interesting. Right now, I, 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 came, I have a client and he turned 71 last year. And right off the bat, he's thinking, well, I can't make RSP contributions now because in fact, last year, any of his RSPs went into a RIF. There is one exception to the rule is that if your spouse is under 71, you can continue to contribute to a spousal RSP. All right, yeah. And this individual is still working. And I'm thinking, okay, well, let's just give an, a scenario here. Let's say the husband in 2018 was 71, and let's say his wife was 64 in 2018. And let's say he's making 120,000 a year. Well, right now also, the spouse has $500,000 in spousal RSPs. I'm thinking, well, what can you do with that? Because there's always that three-year rule. So you always, always have to wait, well, 2018, 19, 20, 2021, you can start drawing out of the spousal RSP. If you take it out beforehand, it's actually attributed back to the contributor, which means the husband would end up having to pay the tax on this. Mm -hmm. And he's already making 120000 a year. Mm -hmm. There's one exception to the rule. If she put the money into a RIF at age 64, the January when of this year, she can start taking out the minimum. And the minimum this year, since she's 65 in 2019, would be 125th or $20,000 she can pull out of that RIF. And it's added to her income. Also, it counts as a pension credit because she's now 20, she's now 65. Mm -hmm. and, and he's over 65, so it also counts for his pension credit. 
And as Andy was just mentioning, since her income's under 44000 she's only paying 20% tax on that at, at worst. And that's not even including any of the exemptions she has. So the worst case scenario, she's paying 20% tax. So great way in this case that he saved at 43% and she's paying at 20. Great way to make money, 23% difference there. But what about his contributions? He, st he can actually put away $21,600 this year into a spousal RSP. Now you do have to watch that notice of assessment. Sometimes they don't show that he has any RSP room because he's over the age of 71. Right. You gotta be very careful there. So you have to look at the 2017's um, tax return, times it by 18% to figure out what he can contribute, which works out to 21,600, which is simply 18% of 120,000. So he puts this money away. Let's say he works for eight more years and he's 60 and he's now 78 years old. You're thinking, well, who the heck would work till 78 years old? Well, we're finding more and more people are actually mainly business owners are working till well into their 70s. In fact, one of our listeners here, I was speaking to him this year and a well-known Hamiltonian, you may have, uh, he runs a little company called Fox 40 Whistle. Um, <laughs> he, he was telling me how he's loving working and he's, uh, he's in his around 73 right yeah, now, actually. Yeah. And he's loving it. And, he, yeah. and I can't see him slowing down at all. Yeah. So some, some strategy like this would work well. Again, I'm not sure his wife's age, but at least I know his age. But for those people that can keep adding to these spousal RSPs, I worked it out that if he did this for eight years, there, he would have contributed 172000 he would have saved 75,000 in tax. It would have only been $98,000 his actual cost mm -hmm. because he saved 75,000 in tax. If his wife pulls out $35,000 a year after that and pays 20% tax, in fact, what happens is that money he invested would have grown to $280,000 could it be taken out. So he, and he only put in after tax 98,000. On an after tax basis, he put in 98,000 after tax. She got to take out 224,000 after tax. Fantastic way to move money from the higher income spouse using those tax brackets as Andy just mentioned and still, funny enough, still making RSP contributions when you're 78 years old. But the trick is you have to have a younger spouse. <laughs> okay. Oh, there's a trick. There is a trick. <laughs> and this twist. probably was going on a long time Are we going to talk about that in the next segment? Or? <laughs> well, we did have the divorce segment earlier, but that. anyway. <laughs> We're going to come full circle here. Yes. It could be the woman that's older, too. It could have been. It could be either way. That's right. Yeah. Can't could be stereotype either way. here. That's right. Oh, we should back out now. We are planning <laughs> your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. We're coming right back. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call now and leave a message at 905-529-7165 and take a peek at the website. There you can ask a question via the listener inquiry button and listen to old shows. That's at andyanddon.com. All right, dumb things smart people do with money. <laughs> no, wow. There was a new book released this week uh, called uh, the dumb things smart people do with their money. And this was by uh, a financial planner in the U.S. Her name is Jill Schlesinger. And so I was trying to capture some of the highlights from mm -hmm. the book. And um, so if you're interested, I'm sure you can go on to Amazon or, or find it. I think it's uh, the ebook's only 15 bucks or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, so I was looking at it yesterday and I was thinking uh, there were some, some interesting lessons in it. And I just sort of captured what I think were the top three things that, that seemed to jump out. And they're 
obvious in many ways, but it's just part of our discipline and our makeup around money that mm-hmm. we just seem to avoid doing things. The rest of life for many of us is way more interesting than the day-to-day figuring out of money mm-hmm. and all of the ins and outs. Um, but the number one, the number one thing has to be paying off consumer debt. And, you know, to the extent that people have credit cards, you just can't keep doing it. it, For, you know, I I understand. And I I mean, I, in my twenties, when I was learning the ropes in this business, Mm -hmm. there were periods of time when I had credit card debt, Mm -hmm. I admit it. And, and I know that, um, uh, I knew what had to get done and that became a goal to obviously get rid of it as quickly as possible. And once I got it down, once that first time I remember getting it down to zero and then the ability to pay it off every month from Mm -hmm. then on became easier and easier and easier because the thought of actually paying extra interest or just not using the card effectively for what it's supposed to be. So paying off consumer debt, and it could be a credit card, it could be... um, uh, through a furniture store, an appliance store. There's all kinds of different ways that people, and, and the, and the problem is, is that credit and debt is so easy to access. Yeah. And even as I, you know, I'm, I drive into the radio station here and I think about, and I listen, uh, to commercials on the radio, I'm, you know, watching television and I'm looking at, uh, you know, Oh, we'll, we approve everybody, mm-hmm. you know, like there's, there, there's one commercial about you're approved, yeah, you know, and, yeah. and everybody's approved. Yeah, so yeah. how can everybody be approved? You know, that this doesn't make sense. We're, too many people are being approved yeah, <laughs> to yeah. be honest. And that's, oh. and that, and we have record levels of debt. And so I don't sure how it's going to end. Hopefully it'll end a lot prettier than, than it has in other scenarios. But, mm-hmm. um, so debt, paying off the consumer debt, which is the highest interest component of your debt, is the number one goal. Mm-hmm. Let's get rid of that, get it down to zero, and then tell, promise yourself you're not going to get back in that situation mm-hmm. again. Um, life can throw us curveballs, I get it, but um, uh, this has to be a priority. Number two, which I thought was an excellent one, was maxing out your retirement savings through work. Hmm. And mm-hmm. too often people have access to matching funds, to yeah. um, enhancements, to savings plans, to opportunity for, and really it's just the employer trying to say, you know, we value your contribution and part of your compensation is going to be building your financial future so mm-hmm. that you're going to be comfortable. You won't be stressed about money and you'll be more focused on your job sure. and more happy about your job yeah. because you're not worrying about money. And I just looked at this and, I'm, and I, I use a couple of examples. You know, if you're part of a group plan or a group pension plan where you can put in, say, 5% of your income mm-hmm. and your employer will match it with 5%. And just looking at two different income levels, you know, $60,000 a year and say $100,000 a year, well, your 5% uh, works out to roughly about 100, uh, uh, that's three grand a year at 60,000. At a hundred thousand a year of salary, that's five grand a year. It's a hundred and ninety-two dollars a pay cycle mm-hmm. that you put into this plan, and they're going to match it with another five grand. So you've got ten grand working for you. Man. And if you look at and now, a lot of times people say, "Well, I'm not going to stay there that long." Well, I don't care how long so? you're going to stay. <laughs> that's <laughs> yeah. right. You know, before Cash you know out. it, before you know it, ten years have gone by, yeah. and you've been there, 
and you delayed. Mm-hmm. You delayed several years, and you're only going to kick yourself that you didn't start as soon as you were eligible. So a lot of times it's a three-month waiting period. Maybe it might be a six-month waiting period. Maybe it's a year. Whatever the time period mm-hmm. is before you can get into the plan, seize the moment as soon as you as soon as you can. Yeah. But just looking at a $60,000 a year income, 3000 a year uh, of contribution, 5%, matched with 5% is six grand. If you, over the next 10 years, that's going to accumulate to about 79,000 at 6%. So your three grand for 10 years is 30 grand. It's going to be worth 79,000 after 10 years. If you wait one year, so you only have nine years of compounding, the same thing, it's only worth 69, Mm. 10 grand. So for three grand, you've given up 10 grand for one year. Mm. So think about that. Every year you've deferred, Mm. you've thrown away 10 grand, 10 grand. 10 grand, just keep adding it up. You got to get started. And uh, obviously the numbers get bigger at the, at the $100,000 level. Mm. And you know, if you're staying for 20 years at an employer and you don't start, uh, after 20 years, that same person earning 60,000 a year, that's going to be worth 110,000. Mm. If you waited one year and you, st- and you only had 19 years of compounding, only 101,000, a difference of nine grand for your three grand contribution, yeah. right? So it's just, to me, it just doesn't make sense why people keep deferring this. Um, and then the third thing, which is a, a valuable, and particularly in the US, because they saw the government shutdown, having that emergency reserve, yeah. having access to some funds for you know three, six, 12 months worth of your expenditures that you need, um, and worst case scenario, access to some form of credit, line of credit that you can tap into for a short period of time. Work stoppages can happen. You could be sick period uh, for a short time period, and you just need to have that bit of reserve. It gives you peace of mind, and it's a sleep at night factor too. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. 905-529-7165. Call now. Leave a message. They'll return your call. And check out their website at andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon, all one word, dot com. We're coming right back. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call now and leave a message at 905-529-7165 and take a peek at their website at andyanddon.com. There you can hear old shows and ask a question via the listener inquiry button. We're continuing with dumb things smart people do with money. <laughs> well, I would have the opposite. Smart things dumb people do with their money. <laughs> That'll be the next that's show. Next that's week. My, that's, <laughs> that's, that's the show for show. me. The one thing that kind of gets me all the time is still we have this, a lot of people have a GIC mentality. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these people do very, they're very smart in so many different aspects of their life in terms of making the money. Mm-hmm. But GIC has been proven time and time and time again, after tax, after inflation, you will never make any money. Yeah. In fact, whatever you could have bought this year, and let's say you could buy whatever it was, a stereo, computer, a sofa, groceries, and it costs $1,000 this year. If you put in a GIC, you can't afford the same thing next year yeah. because it hasn't grown as fast as inflation. Mm-hmm. So, and I'm looking at the rates right now, and it's, it's so, some of it's very misleading too. I want to go over that too. So some of it's not simply the, uh, the client per se, it's the bank being very misleading. Because, uh, and I'll get through that in a second, but just looking at the rates, if you looked at a one-year GIC right now, you would get 1.45%. Well, inflation last year, they just indexed all the tax rates by 22 so inflation last year was 2.2% and one year is getting you 1.45. What if you locked it up by for five years? Yeah. Five years, you get 2.2. 
you'd have to lock your money up for five years. You cannot touch it. And you're you're going to get 2.2%, which was simply the inflation rate inflation, last year. Yeah. So very low rates. And then if it is not in an RSP or a tax-free savings account, you have to pay tax on this. Mm-hmm. And at those rates that Andy was talking about, in some cases, you basically can divide that in half. Mm-hmm. So if you're getting 2.2, you're only going to get 1.1 after tax, mm-hmm. depending on your tax rate. So that's that's one thing. The results are are horrible as a long-term investment. Now, if you are going to use them for, oh, my kid's going to school or college or university in two years, fantastic. Mm-hmm. Put them in a two-year GIC, get 1.6. It's no longer the return you're worried about. It's protecting the principal. Yeah. But if you're looking at longer term, well, protecting the principal is not as important. Longevity risk, interest rate risk, tax risk, mm. and of course, this bad return inflation risk. Mm-hmm. They often have some specials. And it's kind of interesting. If you went, say, 14 months, and they, they, they're having these out right now because they don't want them to mature in the RSP time. Mm-hmm. So they'll end up maturing in April and then the rates will be lower then again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right now is a very competitive time for banks mm-hmm. because they are trying to attract GIC money for the RSPs. Mm-hmm. So if you put them out 14 months, well, 14 months GIC ranges from 1.95 to two and a quarter. So in the, and a two and a quarter applies for amounts over 100,000, mm-hmm. which is actually better than the five-year rate. So they're definitely trying to attract those deposits. But again, I can guarantee you when they do come up for maturity at that time, the rates will actually be worse than February. Yeah. Because again, there's competition for rates right now. And the other one that's interesting is the, here, and this is a, a three-year premium, cashable GIC. Well, cashable GICs, currently this one here is paying 1.1% per year for three years, which isn't good, but it is cashable. So I'm thinking, well, you know, I guess if you got the flexibility of a cashable GIC, it won't be too bad. Well, if you cash it in the first 90 days, you get zero interest. Mm. If you cash it in between 91 days and one year, you get 0.1% interest, <laughs> okay? Which is basically, yeah. you're getting better in bank accounts. Yeah. If you cash it in one day short of the third year, you said for whatever reason you had just one day short, you're going to get 0.3% return on your money, mm-hmm. 0.3 versus 1.1 per year. So you got to be extremely careful on those cashable ones because at the, the end result, you're not getting anything if you cash it in. Right. So if, you, if there's any fear you're going to cash that money in, you're better off or part of that in, put it into a high interest savings account mm-hmm. because you're trying, to, you're trying to organize your money of when it comes due for when you need it. Right. Now, the, my, probably my biggest pet peeve, though, if I have anything, is these market growth GICs. A lot of institutions are actually, I've gotten out of those. And this is where I find it very misleading. So there's this, uh, this one here, it doesn't matter what company, I'm just happening to be looking at TD, but it could be Royal, CIBC, Nova Scotia, any of them, they're all the same. But the TD Canadian Banking and Utility GIC, two years. So you're investing in something that mimics the stock market. Right. So it says the maximum return is 5.5%. And the minimum return is 0.75%. So you think, I'm thinking as soon as I read this, well, okay, well, at least if the market does okay, I can make 5.5% per year. And if I actually, it has a couple bad years, at least I know I'm going to make 0.75% per year. Not bad, okay, for a very conscious, safety conscious person. Mm -hmm. It turns out I'm wrong. You have to see these little numbers that are attached, and then you have to go to the fine print to find Mm -hmm. out that that two-year rate is not per year. All the other rates are per year, but these ones have a little asterisk beside it. That's 
over the two years. The max, the most you can make on investing in the stock market would be 5.5% over two years. Oh, right. Which only is equivalent to about, say, two and a quarter percent a year. And the minimum is actually over the course of the two years too. So you're only going to make about 0.37% per year if the market does horrible in those two years. Mm -hmm. And the other part about these things is they still count them as interest. They're not capital gains. So you're investing in the stock market, but you're getting taxed like interest. And perfect example, let's say it happened to mature December 31st of last year. We just had a horrible December. Mm -hmm. If you needed the money, um, if you could have waited another month, you say, okay, well, I best not to pull it out now, the market's low. Let's drag it out another month. Well, by dragging another month, the month of January, the Toronto stock market's gone up 9%. Mm-hmm. Okay, in the month of January. You'd have, okay, well, that's okay. I got back a lot of my money and cashed it in. When GICs come due, they come due that day. You have yeah. no flexibility at all. So at the end of the day, <clears throat> be very careful with the fine print. Look at to see if it is a return per year or is it a return for the whole term? And really, in the old days, you never had these returns of the whole term. It's always per year. But there's always little numbers beside these. And it's basically an asterisk. Read the fine print. All right. Look for the asterisk. Uh, we have been planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox have been here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call now and leave a message, 905-529-7165. And check out the website at andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon.com. You can hear old shows there and ask a question via the listener inquiry button. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank, Thank you, Scott. Scott. Catch you next week. You bet.